Welcome to your Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now it's time for our reading in the New Testament. And the scripture we'll be reading today is from Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. Here's a brief commentary on what we'll be reading about in scripture today to help us uh, give a little understanding to the narrative. We begin, of course, with verse 1 in chapter 9. What did Jesus mean when he said that uh, some of the disciples would see the kingdom of God arrive in power? Well, there are several possibilities. He could have been foretelling his transfiguration, resurrection, and ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or his second coming. The transfiguration is a strong possibility because Mark immediately tells that story. We don't know why Jesus singled out Peter, James, and John for uh, the special revelation of his glory and purity when they went up there to the mountain. Perhaps uh, they were the ones most ready to understand and accept this great truth. could have been because these three disciples were uh, the inner circle of the group of twelve. They were among the first to hear Jesus' call. They headed the gospel list of disciples, and they were present at certain healings where others were excluded. Jesus took the disciples to either Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor. A mountain was often associated with closeness to God and readiness to receive His words. Now, Jesus was not a reincarnation of Elijah or Moses. He was not merely one of the prophets. As God's only Son, He far surpasses them in authority and power. Many voices try to tell us how to live and how to know God personally. Some of these are helpful, many are not. We must first listen to the Bible and then evaluate all other authorities in the light of God's revelation. Now, Jesus told Peter, James, and John not to speak about what they had seen because they would not fully understand it until Jesus had risen from the dead. Then they would realize that only through dying could Jesus show his power over death and his authority to be king of all. As the three disciples came down from the mountain with Jesus, they passed from a reassuring experience of God's presence to a frightening experience of evil. The beauty they had just seen must have made the ugliness seem even uglier. And we'll read all about it here in Scripture today. As our spiritual vision improves and allows us to see and understand God better, we'll also be able to see and understand evil better. Jesus' words do not mean that uh, we can automatically obtain anything we want if we just think positively. Jesus meant that anything is possible if we believe because nothing is too difficult for God. We cannot have everything we pray for as if by magic, you know, rubbing a magic lantern. But we do it with faith. According to God's will, we can have everything we need to serve Him. And with that, let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. February 27th. The New Testament. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, 
and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, Why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, Since he was a little boy. The Spirit often throws him into the fire, into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible, if a person believes. The Father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen. You spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, Why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, This kind can be cast out only by prayer. Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5 The holy mountain that is mentioned here in Scripture today is Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, the city that David named as Israel's capital. The temple was built there as the place for the people to meet God in worship and prayer. The psalm writer asked God to send his light and truth to guide him to the holy mountain, the temple, where he would meet God. God's truth 
provides the right path to follow, and God's light provides the clear vision to follow it. If you feel surrounded by darkness and uncertainty, well, follow God's light and truth. He will guide you. Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5. Declare me innocent, O God. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars. For you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed me aside? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. I will praise you with my harp, O God, my God. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 18. Hiding hatred makes you a liar. Slandering others makes you a fool. Good morning. Tyler Pack here with Transformation Radio, reminding you Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrence Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslifeschange.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio. Good evening. Our text is going to be uh, what it was last week, but we're in Galatians. So we're going to read here uh, Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. So you can follow along on the screen, or if you have a Bible, you can turn there. But our text reads, and this is Paul, he's writing, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24, he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the Word of the Lord. So what I want to do real quick before we jump into... uh, to really what we're going to be talking about today is I want to also read to you another text. And it's the first verse of this chapter, chapter 5. And so if you go back to the beginning of our chapter, verse 1 says, and this is Paul again, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. And then he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul's telling us right here, see, what we have in Christ is he's telling us we have freedom. Freedom from oppression. Freedom from confinement. Paul also tells us to stand firm. To hold our ground. To maintain a position. To be steadfast. But freedom from what? Freedom for what? Stand stand our ground in what sense? 
And I, I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to stray too far from our text because what we, do, what we find ourselves in in Galatians is we find ourselves in a very particular context and in a very particular problem. So let's back up again into chapter 2. I want to read two verses, verses 12 through 13. It says, But when Cephas, and that's Peter, the apostle, or the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him. Paul. Paul opposing Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Really weird line in there. It says he feared the circumcision party. What in the world is he talking about? He feared the circumcision party. Well, what we know is that there was a group of people, and so what they were propagating was they still, they were, they still believed in the requirement of circumcision as an initiatory right into the people of God. They believe that, that you're saved, redeemed, found to be in right relationship with God because of the act of circumcision. Now friends, praise God, but that is not the initiatory act for us to know God. Right? But this is the conflict. This is the conflict. This is the setting. So what we have is we have a group of Jewish folks that were saying that you had to become culturally Jewish in order for God to adopt you, in order for God to save you, in order for God to redeem you. And we know that this isn't the gospel. And what we also have to understand is for some of you, like, how does this apply to me? Well, we have to understand that we often do the same thing. Well, how does that look for us? Well, whether we would ever say it or not, sometimes subversively in our subconscious, we can think things like, oh, you have to become a white, middle-class American to be saved. Or you must talk in a certain way or act in a certain way to be saved. Or you must adopt uh, my particular customs and rituals in order to be saved. If not, and this is what Paul was calling Peter, if not, I'm not even going to eat with you. Which in this custom was a sign of acceptance. If I eat with you, I accept you. And so I will not accept you. And you know what? I'm not even really sure if God accepts you. What we know is that this, at its core, is what we talk about a lot. And and it's self-righteousness. And we talk a lot about how bad self-righteousness is. And we say that we need to accept and welcome God's imputed righteousness, meaning the righteousness that He gives us because of His sinless life. But what does it mean? What does self-righteousness really mean? It means to find yourself as being right. Or think of it this way. Instead of self-righteousness, you could say self-acceptance. I'm acceptable because of me. I'm worthy because of me. Because I've earned it. Because I'm holy. And again, this isn't the gospel. This isn't the good news of Christ. 
Remember, Paul says, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what enslaves us? This self-righteousness, this self-rightness, this self-acceptance. I'm going to read you one more block of text, and this is uh, fast forward a little past chapter 2 and chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 goes on, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy there. And then he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified by God or before God by the law. For, and then he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith. So the upright person, the righteous person, will have a strong belief, will have a trust, will have a steadfastness, not in themselves, but in Christ. That's what the upright person, that's what they live by. They have faith, they have belief belief in Christ. They're not going to live, if we're upright, if we're the righteous person, we're not going to live by some ethnic ritual. We're not going to base our beliefs on the color of skin. We're not going not by some religious super-spiritualism. We live in Jesus, for Jesus, by Jesus. It's about Jesus. So that's the context of Galatians and the conflict that we're in. And as he's talking about fruit of the Spirit, that's, that's where we find ourselves. And what we examined last week was, was the difference between the Christians' two natures. As Christians, we have two natures. We have our flesh, which is in rebellion against God. And and on the other hand, we have the Spirit, which is the power of God in us. And these two natures are in conflict with one another. They're in conflict with one one another. So, So what we also know is that if you're not a Christian, you have one nature, the flesh. You live by your flesh Alone, and so then the question is: Well, well, I see, I see unbelievers do good things, but really the difference that we find is deeper than just the action. It's why you do what you do. So, for example, the unbeliever will, you know, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't gossip because I'll be happier if I don't gossip, or I won't lie because I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get in trouble. This is how unbelievers teach ethics. Be good because in the end, it will benefit you. There's no goodness in that. You're simply capitalizing on a better return on the investment. What's better in the end for me? I don't want people to think I'm a bad guy, so I won't cheat. That's not goodness because if that's the reason you do what you do, you're still harboring deep selfishness in your heart. Christians have a new nature, God's Spirit dwelling in them, and it changes the Christian. So the first thing, before we start to dive into to the two other, the two additional um, adjectives for the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to talk about the idea of grace versus our works and how that applies in this context. So the difference between love for the flesh and for the Spirit takes place on the motivational level. What does that mean? We're going to unpack that. See, love 
acted out in a fleshly way and love acted out in a spirit-driven way might look very similar on the outside, but the motivations, the reasons I do that are very different. For example, and I've used this before, but you could go and you could serve the poor. And that would be a great thing to do. But are you doing it because you love the poor? Are you doing it because you think it's hip? Or because you think someone will pat you on the back? Or because you think it will make you look good in front of other people? That it will benefit you in some personal way? That it will look good on your, on your resume? And in essence, the big question there is, in other words, are you serving the poor simply for the poor's sake? Or are you serving the poor for your sake? It's a motivational level. This takes place on the motivational level. And on the outside, the actions will look very similar. Works righteousness, self-righteousness, it's always, what we have to understand though, is it's always fleshly and it's always selfish on this motivational level. Always. People motivated by grace are different. People motivated by grace are different. How so? Well, if we go back to verse 1, from experience, we should know that by pursuing works, by pursuing self-righteousness, there is no life, there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no humility, there is no radical service, there is no generosity. We are slaves to ourselves and we are slaves to our sin. Always trying to prove ourselves through our efforts, in our performance, and in some way, uh, we, attempt to, we attempt to earn God's favor by what we do and how we perform. And that's why Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In essence, what he's saying is, don't go back from grace. Don't turn to other means of acceptance than Christ. You're adopted. You're loved. You've been ransomed. He's reminding us of the truth. Your motive for service is now, if we're living according to grace, if we're living according to our new, our new nature, your motive for service is now based on gratitude and joy and love. Not in an attempt to put God in your debt. Not in, a, in an attempt to put someone else in your debt or to impress people by how great you are. Because you're not great. But the beautiful reality is, is Jesus is. And Jesus has given you His righteousness. Jesus has given you His stamp of approval. His acceptance. You need no other stamp of approval. So, grace and works will play out differently on the motivational level, meaning why do I do what I do? And this is why we must continually ask ourselves those questions. Why do I serve? Why do I speak up? Why do I sing? Why do I work so hard? Why do I not work? Why? Why am I doing this? Why? What's my reason? Because in the law, you can't have life. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, but this is where life can be found. This is where life can be found. If you want peace, draw near to Christ. If you want patience, draw near to Christ. In the end, the big message here isn't to do more, but rather, this is what your life could look like. It's an invitation. 
And we must be reminded, and this is going to be on the screen, and, and I heard this this week in one, in one of our meetings. One of the other guys said it, but it's good. We must be reminded that the gospel is not against effort, but it is against earning. It is against earning. For example, a gospel marriage, a good marriage. This will be applicable to some of you and, and others not, but at least you'll get the idea. Well, a gospel marriage is a beautiful thing because it points us to God. How so? Well, think about it. A healthy marriage is one in which spouses love and serve one another, not because of what they can get out of each other, but simply because they enjoy one another. If that dynamic changes, it becomes toxic. So a healthy marriage takes effort, but it should not take earning. In a healthy marriage, you don't earn your spouse's love. Your spouse does not earn your love. You love your spouse simply because it's a pleasure to you. You enjoy your spouse. This is a beautiful example of how our relationship with God should function. Should function. We should extend great effort in our Christian walk but not in an effort to earn God's love. We extend effort simply because God has accepted us in Christ. Jesus has made a way for us and we love him. So this is what it looks like to be motivated by grace. Grace says, I know I haven't deserved for God to love me. I know I could never live up to God's standard. I know that God is sovereign. I know that he's created all that exists. He's adopted me. He's welcomed me into relationship with Him. He accomplished this by His Son willingly taking my place. And I follow Him because I love Him. I obey because I've been welcomed into His family. I extend effort because I know I'm a son or a daughter that simply wants to please my good and my gracious Father. And what I want us to realize is there's no fear in that. There's no coercion in that. There's no drudgery in that. That's evidence of a heart posture that's motivated by grace. That's motivated by grace. If your relationship with God is something that's a chore, if you're constantly trying to muster up the energy to pray and to read your word or to spend time doing the things that would bring you closer to God, then I would say that you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. Because you're in essence saying, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I better pray. And, well, I don't want to displease the pastor, so I better read my Bible. And, you know, my church is going to think I'm a joke if I don't contribute to the homeless fund. And if I don't put money in the basket, the deacons, they're going to get on my case. And, and this is, in essence, a heart posture that's motivated by works. You're living in the flesh and not by the Spirit. And in this list, Paul's saying, I invite you to a better way. I invite you to a better way. I invite you into the way of the Spirit, to the way of Christ. Yes, you're going to struggle with the flesh. Yes, you were once even slaves to the flesh, but there's a new way. There's a new way. One that produces real love, real joy, real peace, and real patience. 
I'm inviting you into a new way of life. And opportunities, they're always going to arise. Life happens, and there's going to be opportunities daily that arise where we can live in light of our flesh or we can walk according to the Spirit. And what we have to realize is oftentimes, opportunities for joy come in the context of suffering. And peace often comes. We have opportunities to be peaceful, often in times of fear and uncertainty. And love is often a call to to love your enemy and the one that persecutes you. And Paul's exhorting us, there's a better way. You who have put your faith in Christ, you have a new nature. You have the Spirit. You have the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit practically means actively acknowledging and relying on God's indwelling presence in us, in me, in you, if you're a Christian. We had a meeting talking through this text this week with some of the other pastors, and one of the other pastors, Nick, he mentioned reading N.T. Wright and and, and Wright unpacking this text and basically saying that Paul was calling the Christians to get in line, to get in line, to get in, to get in line with their new nature. Basically, you're out of line. Your new nature looks like love and joy and peace and patience and so on and so forth. And we need to understand something. If, if we're Christians, we're not, if, if you're a Christian, we're not telling you to pursue the Spirit like it's something out there that you've got to find. You're going to take some mystical journey to find the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit in you. And what Paul is saying is get in line. Walk according to your new nature. Walk by the Spirit. Walk according to your new nature. So real briefly, let's talk about peace. Real briefly. And i got to be honest. Peace and patience are the two qualities of the Spirit that are, that are, that are my weakest. That are my weakest and, and where I most often find conflict in my soul. Peace. Peace. Does peace describe your life? If people spent time... This is stuff I've just been asking myself this week. If, if people spent time with you, would they describe your life and your relationships and your work and your energy and everything as peace? As peace. And I, I love, I, I just wanted to see which, which Greek word was used here. But the Greek word for peace here means freedom from worry. Isn't that awesome? Freedom from worry. True peace. God's peace is what we want. Tim Keller writes that peace is a confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God rather than our own. It replaces anxiety and worry. We rest in God's wisdom and control, not our wisdom and our illusion of control. Now, according to Keller, there's a fake version of peace where it looks like peace, but it's not. I like this. He says the fake version of peace is indifference or not caring about something. Peace. See, sometimes people might look like they're peaceful, but they just don't care. And that's not what we're talking about. 
Peace is caring a lot about your life, about God, about the things around you. It's caring a lot, but it's having confidence in God's wisdom and confidence in God's control. Because what we have to realize at the end of the day is that you can't change people. You can't fix people. I can't either. But you should care about people a lot. And you should trust God with them. Your deep trust, genuine trust for God should bring about peace in your heart. Peace in your life. So, does a, does a restfulness, does rest define your life? Does, do people feel at home when they're with you? Do, do people feel a calm when they're with you? And as I thought about this, I thought, this could, this could possibly be one of the best apologetics to our culture for the gospel. To people that don't know God. Because when we look around at our culture, there, there isn't a lot of peace. People are peaceless. There's no rest. We run and we work and we go until we die. And there's no time for rest. And we as Christians, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can offer a wonderful alternative. I just, I love that Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus just beckons us. These are Jesus' words. What does he say? He says, come ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you what? He doesn't say, come ye who are weary and heavy laden and get, get to work. Try a little harder. He says, does peace mark your life? And what does that show you about your heart? What does that show you about what you really care about? Who you really trust? Real briefly on patience. And oh Lord, forgive me. This is my worst one. My worst one. The Logos exegetical summary of Galatians, and I'm quoting a couple things here because I don't have anything to say because I'm bad at this one. I need preached at when it comes to this. But it reads, it means being patient with other people by refusing to be irritated by the wrongs they do to us. The main emphasis here is on a passive quality of bearing up under the stresses and strains of life. Oh, this is a real good one. It means being long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. It means forbearing and enduring in the midst of provocation. I said that terribly wrong. And injury from others. That's kind of a foreign language to us, isn't it? It means being long-suffering towards those who aggravate you. Who does that, right? And Keller writes this. He says, this is an ability to face trouble without blowing up or just hitting out. I'm done. That's so good, isn't it? And none of you do it. I don't. But it's good. And we have to remind ourselves of the truth. And again, I love it because Keller defines it and then he gives us an opposite and a counterfeit. And the opposite of of patience is pretty obvious. 
The opposite of patience is resentment towards God and others. Why? Why is that the case? Well, where are you? You're not taking care of me. You're taking too long. Where are you, God? And so we can begin to resent God because He isn't working within our timeline or He isn't working within our plan. So we think that God's abandoned us and we resent God. Or even change, change up the game. It can work pretty similar with people, especially people or a person that you've elevated to God-like status in your life. You're not taking care of me. You're taking too long. Where are you? And it goes back to peace, having confidence and rest in God, trusting in His control and not ours. Man, our prayer just needs to be, Lord, help us display patience. Help us. Now, the counterfeit of patience is cynicism or lack of care. Sometimes people can look patient, but it's really just that they don't care at all. And they're cynical. And the idea here is that if Christ has saved us, if the Spirit is at work within us, we care. And we care a lot. Because we're not just talking about broken people. We're talking about the image bearers of God. Lord, give us patience. Help us trust. I'm almost done. But but lastly, what, what evidence of peace and patience are there in your life right now? What evidence is there? What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? So, okay, you're a Christian and you have peace. What does that look like? Okay, you're a Christian and you, and you have patience. What, is, what does that look like? Because when we gossip, when, the text says you're devouring each other. When, you, when you're divisive, when you're jealous, when you're angry, you devour, we devour each other, and, and we destroy relationships, and it doesn't lead to peace. Paul's telling us to get in line. To walk according to our new nature. To walk in the Spirit. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back from grace. If you're a believer, don't go back from grace. Don't turn to other means of acceptance. God has has extended His mercy to you. And He loves you. Loves you. Walk in the Spirit and receive true life. Receive true life. The flesh is death. Death. So this is an invitation to true love, to true joy, true peace, to true patience. Pray with me. And I just want to remind you with every head bowed, if if you're here and you have questions, concerns, if you need prayer, at the end of our time this morning, myself and others are going are gonna to stay up here to, uh, to offer ministry for you. And so I just want to make sure that, that is, that's apparent because we want to serve you in that way. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. This one's a difficult one for me because this is, this is me preaching to myself. Because God, we are, I am weak here. And it's really devastating to realize because, God, it's a lack of trust in the one that we should trust most. I just pray that we would be a church 
of peace. We'd be a, we'd be a patient church, a church that trusts you. That we'd be a community that is pursuing a life walking by the Spirit, loving you. God, we're surrounded by brokenness, pretty pretty evident in this place, in this neighborhood. People are, are yearning for hope. And I just pray, God, that what we would not give them is just busyness and indifference and apathy but that, God, we would pursue you with our whole hearts and that it would, it would, something would begin burning within us that is genuine care and concern and joy. That, God, when people see us, they wouldn't see frazzled, worried individuals, but that they would see people that, even in the midst of difficult situations, we trust in our Creator. We trust in our God. So, Lord, go with us. I just pray those that are far from you, you draw them near you. You remind us of your grace. You remind us of your goodness. Amen. And that does it for today's podcast. Tune in tomorrow for another edition of Transformation Radio.